Politics. This is Ben Max. Thanks for tuning in for this episode of the show. We're speaking here on Friday, February 9th, 2024. Today on the show, we are continuing to dig into state policymaking as Albany lawmakers and Governor Kathy Hochul are in the midst of their 2024 budget and legislative session. A new state budget is due by the April 1st start of the new state fiscal year. And then the legislative session will continue after that until early June. Mayor Eric Adams of New York City was in Albany on Tuesday, February 6th, testifying before the state legislature in response to the governor's executive budget plan, as well as the city's priorities and taking lots of questions from state assembly members and state senators on a wide variety of topics. Adams discussed some of his top priorities, including an extension of mayoral control of New York City schools, a variety of housing policy planks to help the city build more housing. He wants more power for the city to enforce against illegal smoke shops, which is illegal cannabis selling in many instances, and a variety of other planks to uh, his platform that he wanted. Especially on the budget front though, in terms of those numbers, much more money to help the city defray the billions of dollars in costs associated with services for asylum-seeking migrants, the other big pillar of his testimony, making up sort of the main piece of the financial request in the budget, and then a variety of other policy matters there, some of which could be in the budget, some of which could pass at any time before the budget or after the budget. We often know in Albany that a lot of policy does work its way into the budget agreement, which is not always just focused on funding level and taxes and revenue and spending and all that. There's often a lot of policy involved. And that gets us to today's guest. My guest today is State Senator John Liu, a Queens Democrat who chairs the Senate's New York City Education Committee and is here to discuss key education issues being considered at the state level, most prominently and perhaps most importantly, the potential extension of mayoral control of the New York City school system, which is due to expire at the end of June after a two-year extension granted in 2022, which was Mayor Adams's first year in office. The system of mayoral control of New York City schools has been around since 2002, when then-Mayor Michael Bloomberg had made it a key campaign uh, pledge that he would go and fight for it in Albany to do away with the old Board of Education system in New York. And he was able to successfully win mayoral control of New York City schools and a new system. And it's been extended a number of times since under Bloomberg and then Mayor Bill de Blasio, and then once under Mayor Adams in his first year, as I mentioned. Much more on that and other topics with Senator Liu in just a moment. He's a key voice in this discussion as chair of the New York City Education Committee. That's what he spent his short amount of question and answer time with the mayor talking about education issues, including the push for lower class sizes that was part of a law passed by the state that Senator Liu had promoted and been the main uh, supporter of in the state Senate. And there are some challenges that Senator Liu has had with getting Mayor Adams and his administration to implement the class size reduction law in the long term. They've been able to comply with the early mandates but there's some real questions about sort of the implementation, the build out long term and whether that's going to come into 
uh, impact some of the questions around mayoral control of city schools and whether the mayor and the school's chancellor, David Banks, have appropriate plans in place around hiring more teachers and building out more schools when needed and a variety of other real nuts and bolts management questions that relate to where students are enrolled, school overcrowding, uh, classroom overcrowding, and so forth. And that's a key piece of the puzzle. So a lot more with Senator John Liu in just a minute. A reminder that Max Politics is now coming to you from New York Law School, where I'm executive editor and program director at the Center for New York City Law. We have some great uh, in-person programming coming up at the Center for New York City Law. The uh, next couple of events that we're hosting include a city law breakfast on Thursday, February 15th with New York City Comptroller Brad Lander, open to the public, but you have to register ahead of time. And then later in February on the 28th, also open to the public, but you have to register. Uh, in the evening on February 28th, we will be hosting a talk uh, about NYCHA, and that will be much more looking at sort of the history and the scope of NYCHA, a very interesting conversation uh, coming up on February 28th at the Center for New York City Law at New York Law School. So there's two events happening in February, and uh, join us at one or both if you can make it for the 15th uh, breakfast event with Comptroller Lander and the event on the 28th uh, dealing with NYCHA. That promises to be a really interesting conversation about uh, the history of NYCHA, as well as sort of some of the recent programs put into place that deal with the NYCHA transformation and the federal monitor. Uh, and that's going to feature a talk by uh, the executive vice president of strategy and innovation at NYCHA, Arvin Sohoni. So please uh, join us for that if you have an interest in NYCHA, which of course has been in the news lately. Uh, we are continuing to bring you Max Politics here from the Center for New York City Law at New York Law School and the in-depth conversations about New York politics and policy continue. If you've missed any recent episodes of the show, find them after this one. Uh, just one most recent highlight, I had a really interesting conversation with the New York City Health Commissioner, Dr. Ashwin Vasin, uh, about his new public health advisory related to social media and some other topics as well. Uh, I've also had some great recent conversations with State Senator Zellner Myrie on housing policy and other issues with a State Assembly member, Alex Boris, on uh, regulations and opportunity related to artificial intelligence. Uh, he's a civic technologist and computer scientist, so it was really interesting to get into that with Assembly member Boris. Uh, some really great conversations in the feed if you missed any. And coming up uh, after this one with State Senator John Liu, Next booked on the calendar is a podcast discussion with New York State Inspector General Lucy Lang, and we will discuss her office's efforts to root out fraud, waste, and abuse in New York government. Uh, so stay tuned for that. That'll likely be coming somewhere around February 15th or 16th. Uh, we're booked to talk with her next week. And so today on the show, State Senator John Liu. He has represented the 16th State Senate District of Northeast Queens since 2019. After, in 2018, he defeated in a hard-fought Democratic primary one of the members of the State Senate's Independent Democratic Conference, or IDC, which had a power-sharing agreement with Republicans that helped the GOP keep narrow control of one house of state government. 
Lou's addition to the Senate, along with other victories over former IDC members, and then general election wins by Democrats over Republicans in the 2018 general election, helped usher in a new era of full Democratic control of state government in New York that has remained since 2019 and led to a very long list of liberal priorities being passed at the state level, with Democrats controlling the governor's office over the course of two governors and the state Senate and state assembly, leading to super majorities in both those chambers that now exist, leading into this year's elections, and we'll see what happens in the fall. Prior to joining the state Senate, John Liu was New York City controller for eight years, citywide tenure that came after he was a member of the New York City Council, so a long tenure in government at the city and state levels. And John Liu was a candidate for mayor in 2013 in the Democratic primary. Senator Liu's district includes some or all of neighborhoods in Queens, including Flushing, Bayside, Fresh Meadows, Utopia, and more. And he is the chair, as I said, of the state Senate's New York City Education Committee. Just a little bit more context on the district. Like other state Senate districts, it's home to about 320,000 New Yorkers, about 60% of whom are Asian American, about 19% white, about 15% Hispanic, and 4% black. In 2020, it was a 62%, 38% Biden district, so not quite as heavily Democratic as many other districts in New York City, but that kind of mirrored the overall percentages in Queens to give you a sense of how the district and Queens voted in that 2020 presidential election as we're here in another presidential year where the full state legislature will be on the ballot. All of the House of Representatives districts, U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand running for re-election and the presidential election. All right, we won't get into too much on the politics side in this conversation. We're talking state budget, state policy, and more with New York State Senator John Liu. Thank you for being here and joining me again. How are you, sir? Pretty good, Ben. Thanks for finally having me back. <laughs> it's been a little while, but uh, we don't we don't have been a that long many time, Ben. We don't have that many repeat guests, so you know, um, don't take it personally. It's great to talk <laughs> <Okay>. with you. <laughs> great Same to talk here. with you again. So um, we'll get into a whole bunch of specifics here, but just broadly speaking, we're speaking here. On Friday, February 9th, just three days ago, Mayor Eric Adams was in Albany. This is one of the biggest, you know, sort of days of the year in New York policy discussion. The mayor of New York City goes up to Albany, testifies in front of the state legislature about the governor's budget, about the mayor's priorities, about policy, and whatever you all want to ask the mayor about, which can range a very wide range of topics. Just broadly speaking, from your perch uh, during that hearing, what were you left thinking about any broad takeaways in terms of the mayor's appearance before the state legislature. Very often, this is the only time of the year the mayor testifies publicly in front of the legislature in any way, shape, or form. Uh, broad takeaways that you left that hearing thinking about. Well, if you ask about broad takeaways, I think uh, the legislature, including myself, we understand how difficult a job is to be mayor of New York City. And perhaps even more difficult with some of the current crises that continue to affect New York City residents and the city as a whole. Uh, so we understand the difficult job, but the mayor of New York City is also very powerful and has 
uh, uh, a ginormous amount of resources at his hands. So that's the kind of balance that we need to strike. And my main takeaway is that we want to we want to work with Mayor Adams for the better for our constituents and the state as a whole. It's clearly been a learning process for him as mayor, as just about any mayor would have uh, in terms of sort of those intergovernmental relationships, the kind of tone to take with the legislature. You know, you come in as mayor of New York City and very often, you know, you can't help but being, you know, a little overconfident. Perhaps we've seen this happen with with other mayors, certainly. Um, Have you noticed a shift over now these three years. I mean, the mayor just finished two years, but now this is sort of the third time as mayor he's coming up to talk state budget. Have you noticed a shift from the mayor and his team? They seem to be taking more care to sort of strike a more collaborative tone with the state legislature. Have you noticed any of that shift yourself? Yes, I think there has a there has been a shift. Um, two years ago, Mayor Adams was in the first year of, it, of his administration, as was the rest of his team. And, you know, he's starting out, he got a mandate in the general election and uh, there's no, there's nothing that holds you back from being very confident about what you need to do and what the people want you to do. Um, But, you know, over time, as with, as you mentioned, every mayor of New York City, they understand that the city of New York is a creature of the state of New York. It's incorporated under the laws of the New York state and is subject to the New York state laws. And so uh, there needs to be support from state government, in particular, the governor, but not just the governor, the um, the state legislature as well. So I think uh, these last couple of years, um, I, I have seen a, a change in both approach and tone. And you can see that already very clearly from the public hearing you referenced that took place just three days ago. Uh, I think that the tone was very different from last year and certainly the year before. Uh, It was more collaborative. And I think that's a reflection of a difference in approach that the mayor has taken. So we're going to talk a lot about uh, mayoral control of city schools and the, and the state. What's that? (laughs) The state power over (laughs) that, that um, process and policy. So let's just put a pin in that for for three or four more minutes and let's just talk about other things quickly and then we'll get to spend a bunch of time on education issues which is obviously your a big focus for you uh as chair of the new york city education committee um just quickly on some of these other things that were the city's you know top priorities from the mayor um financial help in the budget um which of course is you know always fast approaching for an april 1st start of the state fiscal year um the mayor is seeking even more help with funding for migrant services going beyond, you know, what the state has pledged. Do you think the mayor's push for the state to come up with roughly 50% of the city's costs for migrant services is going to be well received in the state legislature? He's looking for something um, in some uh, around $5 billion over the course of three years, because that would be about half of the $10 billion he says the city is spending over the course of three fiscal years. So the state's already provided about $2 billion. Um, the governor's proposing about $2.5 in this budget. Do you think, you know, how do you think the legislature is th- receiving the mayor's request to go even beyond? I think Mayor Adams was reasonable in his request. 
that uh, originally the, the intent was to have the city, state, and federal governments each cough up about 33% of the cost, a third of the cost. And it has now become crystal clear that uh, the federal government's essentially telling the city of New York once again to drop dead on this request. They're not coming up with barely anything. Uh, and in fact, it came out during the hearing that the federal government was charging the city of New York a lot of money just to use uh, sites, for example, the Floyd Bennett Field. So uh, from the mayor's perspective, I think it's reasonable for him to say that, well, the federal government is just not going to step up uh, and I need the state government to be equal partners in this effort. So uh, so he's asking for 50 for the state to cover 50 percent of the cost of the uh, providing services to the asylum seekers. Um, and and he even said that uh, the current budget, as proposed by Governor Hochul, even falls short of the one third arrangement. He's saying that it really only cover, covers about twenty eight percent, and that it was four hundred million short. Even before you switch over to uh, a fifty percent cost sharing uh, cost sharing arrangement, mm -hmm. so the answer to your question is: I think Mayor Adams was reasonable in his request, but there are a couple of questions. First of all just the same way that the city is short on funds now so is the state the state doesn't have a whole lot of extra money to to hand to to divvy up or spread around so that's going to increase budgetary pressures on the state of new york if uh if uh even though i think it's fair to have a 50 50 split it, it may be difficult for the state budget to to pass that so once again we have to keep pressure on the federal government to to pay its fair share um, the other question is, you know, we have seen a lot of reports about changes in cost estimates. Mm. The cost estimates over the last year and a half uh, that, that have been provided by New York City, they've gone all over the place. And so we don't really know for sure or have a, a reasonable level of confidence what the actual number is. So when you say 33% or 50%, what is it of? What is the actual total cost? It's gone anywhere from $2 billion to, <laughs> I think I heard an estimate of $25 billion, at least over the next few years. What exactly is the true cost? And is the city being efficient enough? We heard from the state, uh, from Comptroller Brad Lander as well. And his contention is that the city spent a lot of money, but maybe not necessarily but perhaps not uh, needing to do so, that there has been a, a fair amount of waste and uh, and and cost uh, and payments that are beyond what should have been reasonable. So, uh, so you know, 50-50 cost sharing, I think is fair to ask for, even though it may not be achieved. It's certainly fair, especially if the federal government is just not gonna be uh, a partner in this, uh, but, there remains a, a big question of 50% of what. Mm -hmm. Right. No, and the, those estimates have shifted a lot recently and was part of the whole budget cuts done by the mayor in November, that some of which he then yeah, that reversed budget in deaths. January. And I know you were, yeah, you had some real questions and and some criticism around that, especially when it comes to education uh, funding cuts to schools and, and education programs. Yes, that that's that's a huge issue. We We've continued to increased state funding for New York City public schools year after year. Uh, certainly since, as you mentioned earlier on, the uh, Democrats gained the majority in the state Senate. Uh, but as we've continued to increase state funding, 
it appears that the city has continued to reduce budgets for schools. And that's creating a, a great deal of consternation among many of my colleagues, uh, a, a seeming violation of this concept of maintenance of effort, mm -hmm. which means that the city maintains its effort as we increase state resources. We don't increase state resources only for the city to pull resources out and use for other things. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a, a huge concern about maintenance of effort. There's a lawsuit going on by the teachers union. Right. I'm looking at legislation that would clarify the, what this maintenance of effort can and should be. Uh, but that's a major consideration. And, and you know, I mean, honestly, Colleagues in, in both the Senate and the Assembly don't look kindly when we keep increasing budgets only to hear about uh, about school budget cuts, not only in the news media, but from our constituents. It's a big problem. Is it, You know, I, I talked about this a bit with City Council Speaker Adrienne Adams um, a few months ago when she was on the show. And she sort of, you know, she sort of acknowledged after I, I prodded a few times that you know, there might be some instances where if enrollment's down at schools, which it has been in many schools across the city, as you well know, um, and have discussed, um, which which can help with some of the class size reduction efforts that we'll talk about in a few minutes. But, um, you know, that, that in some cases, it is reasonable for some school funding reduction when enrollment is down significantly. Is that not reasonable or how, how do you view this idea? I mean, is it, is it always it, that school? It seems to make increases? sense. Yeah. It sounds reasonable on the, on the face of it. But first of all, as, as I said before, the state understood that enrollment was going down all across the state, including the city of New York, including the city of New York. And yet we continue to increase state funding for schools across the state and in, mm -hmm. including in New York city. Mm -hmm. So let's make sure that that's clear. And secondly, this idea that enrollment is down, you know, if if enrollment is down like half or even a quarter, <clears throat> then it probably makes sense to start reducing school budgets. And ultimately, what that leads to is the closure of schools. But if this if if enrollments are down a few percentage points, I mean, you know, how many how many teachers do you cut? And if if a class goes from an enrollment of 22 to 16, can you cut a quarter of a teacher? You still need that same teacher, whether you have 16 kids or 22 kids. So uh, the idea that uh, enrollment goes down and therefore a school, an, an individual school should lose funding, uh, that does not make sense once people actually see the operational impact of those kinds of budget cuts. But the, the bigger question is that I don't believe that enrollment dips in the short term should affect school operations. You should keep the schools intact because the enrollment's going to come back up. And that's exactly what we're seeing. We knew that a pandemic is going to create uncertainties. Some people move away or some people take their kids out of schools. There was also the issue of vaccine requirements. And so enrollment went down. But I don't think, and I said this from the get-go, that enrollment's not going to keep going down. It's going to come back up. And in fact, enrollments have come back up. So if we had started dismantling schools two years ago, it would be enormously costly to start reopening those schools again. So it was the right decision to keep funding levels, certainly from the state perspective, at 
increasing levels, even in the face of declining enrollments. And um, and the city should have maintained that funding also. Uh, yesterday, we had a, a hearing with the universities, uh, State University of New York, as well as the City University, and they both said that enrollment was coming back up significantly. And so it's yet yet another example, even at higher education levels, that uh, closing down schools or dismantling portions of schools or uh, cutting back faculty staff uh, in the short term, that's not a good thing. Again, if we expect a huge demographic shift, say, over the next 10 years and enrollments are going to continue to decline, then, yes, we do need to start preparing for that and reducing numbers of teachers, even closing down certain schools. Mm -hmm. But that was I mean, never expected. We always expected enrollment to come back. Well, enrollment had been dropping before the pandemic and birth rates are down. I mean, there, there's some there's some longer term trends that say New York City public school, you know, there's not a lot of housing being built relative to, you know, demand and all that. I mean, there's a there's a few longer term signs that say we may not get back to the peak even that we had five, six, seven years ago of, you know, what was it, close to 1.1 million students or something along those lines that 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 cat, you know, that that might be a peak we don't see for quite a few more years. Um, well, we were down to 800,000s. Now we're back up to well into the 900,000s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are a lot of things that could continue to drive people away from New York, but there are a lot of people who that there are a lot of reasons why many people from around the country and also around the world continue to come to New York. All right. Since we got into education, I want I'll come back to cannabis enforcement and housing later. Those are some of the other mayor, the mayor's top priorities and issues that the legislature obviously is looking at and the governor. We'll, maybe we'll get to those at the end. Let's let's stick with education here. So. Mayoral control of New York City schools, I said in the introduction, uh, Mayor Adams was granted by the legislature and the governor a two-year extension in his first year, so that's coming up for expiration this June. There were some other uh, pieces of the policy that was passed uh, two years ago that include an analysis by the state education department. There have been public hearings. You are very clear as chair of the state Senate's New York City Education Committee, you do not want a mayoral control of New York City schools decision being done in a big state budget deal at the end of March, early April. Will you sort of clarify your thinking on when this decision should be made and sort of sure. the broad thinking on uh, uh, analyzing the study that the state education department is doing, your own assessment, and where we're at on this? You know, Ben, I try to keep it simple. I don't let things that are pretty simple get overly complicated. And it, it's pretty it's a pretty simple concept that this decision of whether to extend mayoral control or not, and if so, for how long, that decision just simply doesn't belong in the context of the New York state budget. Number one, mayoral control or how school governance proceeds in the coming years, it has no impact, no effect on the state budget, nor does the state budget actually have, nor does the state budget have any, any effect on mayoral control. So it's just, it's, it has nothing to do with the budget whatsoever. The budget is about, about what, we should spend money for in the state government and who should be paying the taxes to generate the money to spend. Uh, that's what a budget is. 
Mayoral control and school governance in New York City have absolutely nothing to do with the state budget. Secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, as you mentioned, two years ago when we extended mayoral control to June 30th, 2024, we also engaged the state education department to conduct a thorough study of school governance issues related to New York City. And that, that study looks at uh, what has happened in the 20 years that, may, that New York City has been under a system of mayoral control? Has that overall been good for the public schools, bad? You know, what, what sh- could have been done or should have been done and what still can be done and should be done? So using that, t- that the, the experience, two decades of experience in New York City, combine that with an analysis of what other major school systems have decided in recent years. Many school systems having adopted mayoral control in the 1990s and then in in the last half a dozen years, reverting away from mayoral control and back to more of a, a what people would call a, demo, a more democratic system of a school board. Um, so the, the state education is looking at that and how that kind of those kinds of experiences or conclusions may extrapolate to the city of New York and how we run our public schools here. And then even on top of both of those, to solicit public feedback by way of town halls in each of the five boroughs, which the state education department just completed uh, at this point about a a week and a half ago. Mm -hmm. So we're looking forward to that study. That study is due at the end of March, early April, to make a decision about school governance uh, whether it be mail control or not, and for how long, without being able to be informed by that state education department study, would be uh, would be an illogical and wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. What should, in your mind, and and the study I'm sure will help influence some of your thinking. But in your mind, what should the policy of mayoral control really be judged on? Um, That's know, a great mayor, question. <laughs> the mayor likes to tout that over these 20 years, we've seen major increases in graduation rates, and that's across different types of mayors, right? You had Bloomberg, de Blasio, and now Adams, uh, increases in graduation rates. Obviously, the pandemic can mess with all sorts of things, but you know, increases in state test scores. Um, obviously, there were individual policies of different mayors that were broadly popular, like expanding the pre-K. There were some that were very controversial, like Mayor Bloomberg's, you know, focus on closing schools and opening charter schools. So anyway, what what do you, how do you think about judging the system again? And how much do we make it independent from an individual mayor, right? Because it's, we often get very focused on who's the mayor at the time of the expiration. Okay, Mayor Adams, what are his policies? Is this about him and his policies, or is this about the broader governance structure? How do you think about how it should be judged and whether and how to separate it from an individual office holder? Well, I, I think you just said it all. <laughs> yeah, but I think, what's your opinion? I think the decision, uh, the decision on school governance in New York City should be well informed by this study that is being conducted by the state education department, which in my opinion is unbiased. They're the experts. I don't claim to be an expert. I'm a legislator. I have to deal with politics. The state education department is more uh, is more insulated from politics. 
they're looking at it from an academic and educational expert point of view, which is which is why we defer to them. And so, uh, so I expect that there will be some insights gathered uh, from the experience in New York City and also uh, the decisions made by other major school districts, as well as what the public is saying. Um, but what I don't think should the decision should be based on is Mayor Eric Adams. I don't believe it should be based on any individual mayor. It, it is not about any individual mayor. And it should not be a reflection of the current policies. You know, one, one of the things that I've clearly noticed is that there are stakeholders who who uh, wanted mayoral control when it was a different mayor and now don't want mayoral control and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And so that that can't be the basis for which we decide what our school governance, the system of governance is all about what the system should be, irrespective of who is in in power or in positions of influence at any given moment. This is about how people how the people we elect and the people we put in positions are supposed to uh, be guided by. That's what school governance is. So uh, so it, this should not be a reflection of the mayor, uh, of the current mayor or any specific previous mayor. Um, I it sounds like you know um, Mayor Adams seems to be seeing this more as a almost like a, a, a referendum on on his actions and uh, you know the idea that he may he he may have been successful in some of his pursuits. That's more power to him, but that doesn't necessarily inform uh, how schools should be governed. Mm -hmm. And one one thing that uh, you can that uh, what I've heard and we've heard from these the public stakeholders is that with every change of administration, there are substantial changes in educational policy. We hear this from school administrators, people deep within the Department of Education that have spent a career in education. We hear this from teachers and principals. We hear this from parents uh, that, you know, new mayor, new chancellor, and boom, like a lot of things out the window and new things coming in. Everybody's got to adjust. You know, is that really good for the long-term stability of our public schools? I don't know. But I think we need to see what the experience has been. We've had three mayors, now 23 years, 22 years of mayoral control. And uh, that should guide us, not whether you like this mayor or any previous mayor or what they've done. Mm -hmm. Now, I mentioned in introducing you, you ran for mayor in 2013. If, if, if you were mayor right now, you would be saying, give me mayoral control of city schools and leave me alone, right, to the state legislature. I mean, this is a little bit about sort of the position that people are sitting in and the state sort of keeping power over the city in some ways, right? I mean, we don't do this with a lot of other policies where you give a two-year extension of something and then you revisit it and you tweak it. You most often at the state level, you make your laws. And then if you need to revisit it, you do. We just saw that with bail reform several times, but it, they're mostly not sunsetting things. So there's- You bring up a good point. You know, you bring up a good point. I don't begrudge this mayor or any other mayor uh, who insists that they should have control because they want to be accountable. Every mayor, well, all three mayors under this system have have made that 
have, have made that assertion that they want to be in control because they want to be held accountable or they're going to be held accountable. Therefore, they need the control. Any version of that argument. So I don't I, I expect that any mayor would try to make that argument, uh, which is why we need to take it beyond the position and beyond the mayor. Uh, when 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 uh, you know, let's take a, a much broader example. When a state constitution is written, it's not about who happens to be in power at any given moment. It's what people kind of decide should the, the how the state should be constituted, how the state should be structured. And so that's what this issue really is about. It's about how how the school system should be structured, and not about any particular people in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand no mayor wants uh, mayoral control to be taken away during their tenure because even though it may not be about them, <laughs> you know, sometimes the perception is about that. And even among some of my colleagues, you know, they're they're not happy with what the current mayor is doing. And so they want either a, a an outright repeal of mayoral control or a very short time frame for an extension. Mm-hmm. What I honestly believe is that we need to settle this this question because we've got t- two decades of experience. Mm-hmm. We need to settle the question by either extending mayoral control for a very long time because, as you mentioned, you know it, this should not happen every two years. That's not that's not the way school governance should be structured. It should be for the long term. You know, maybe maybe ten, maybe twenty years. If there's going to be a sunset or no sunset at all until a future legislature decides to change it, or we go to a different system of school governance and put that in place, and and if that doesn't work, then then at some point in in the future, a future legislature may decide to change it. But there needs to be some permanence mm-hmm. or sense of stability in our state laws, especially when it comes to our our school kids. Um. Professor David Bloomfield, who I, I'm sure you know well, uh, has written with a suggestion of sort of more municipal control with giving the city council more power over education, policymaking and oversight, which, again, would mirror basically uh, the rest of city government. Right. And not having so much of this power at the state legislative level. Um what do you think of that proposal as a former city council member, as a former city controller about Perhaps there's ways to look at city control of the school system that's not a school board model with a whole bunch of other local elections, but letting the city council members who are elected by their local districts have more power in the in the process. That that is an idea that's on the table, and uh, there are there are many advocates who think that that system would be good. There are also people who point out flaws in that system. Uh, historically, education has not been treated. So, first of all, historically, education has been, and I expect will always continue to be the most important job of local government anywhere in the state of New York, and actually, for for that matter, pretty much all throughout the country. Schools are not run by the federal government. State governments don't run schools unless there's some kind of problem and there's a receivership. They're always run by local governments. So uh, so on the one hand, that's an argument for, well, you know, there should be city control, local government, uh, local local control of schools and treat the Department of Education like the Department of Transportation, like Department of Sanitation, Department of Environmental Protection, and the New York City Police Department, where you have a commissioner, 
whatever the title happens to be, and and that commissioner is appointed by the mayor, and that's that. Or in this case, uh, the some of the the city control advocates saying, well, at least the chancellor or the head of the Department of Education appointed by the mayor should at least be confirmed by the city council. So that's a, another variety of argument there. Um, on the other hand, you can argue that while well, education has never really been run that way all across the all across the, the country, if you look at uh, if you look at New York State, right? New York State for for a long time, I believe for a couple hundred years at least, the the state education department, the state education commissioner, is not like any other commissioner. The commissioner is actually not appointed by the governor. Almost all the other state commissioners are appointed by the governor. The state education commissioner is appointed by the Board of Regents. And so there's already kind of like a thought that education as a government service is not the same as all the other services. Mm -hmm. And that there needs to be some greater separation from politics and, uh, and, and more long-term stability. Now, by the way, that long-term stability sometimes gets in the way of changes we want to make, but that's generally been the approach to education here in New York and other states. And uh, so that's that's the argument that that kind of uh, goes against this idea of city control or local control. Again, I don't know what the answer is that that needs to be informed by this state education department mm -hmm. study. And and Commissioner Rosa, state education commissioner. Rosa, Betty Rosa, and her team, they understand how how important it is that they get this study right, meaning uh, have it thorough, unbiased, and as much data-driven as possible. All right. Thank you for that extensive discussion of that topic. Let me hit on a couple other quick things. Oh, I'm just I, hitting the ice tip of the iceberg. I know, I know. Listen, you. we could talk. <laughs> I got more education topics here to bring up with you. Yeah. But I want to be respectful of your time. So let me hit a couple other things uh, with you before I let you go. Um, and you know what? I'm going to do a whole separate episode on the class size law. So we won't even talk about that now. Maybe I'll bring you back. Maybe we'll have a couple other people on. We could have a group discussion or maybe we'll have an event at New York Law School on this. Who knows? We'll, Let's do it. We'll get into that another time. Uh, let me leave that aside right Next now. Week. <laughs> Next week. Next um, week. Zero percent chance mayoral controls in the state budget. Is that is that basically your stance or your prediction? You know, I don't like to be absolutist about anything, but um, you know, even even an ice cube has a non-zero chance in hell. I wouldn't even give an ice cube zero chance. So let's uh, not be too absolutist it. about everything. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. But but your preference is no way, no how. Well, it does. It it doesn't work. Okay. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. And it, it would be very it would be a very cynical action government takes. I mean, this, this would only really happen if Governor Hochul sort of made it a real bargaining chip to jam it into the state budget in some way where the governor has outside power to sort of do that. And we've seen this governor hold up the state budget for bail reform or no, once bills. again, once again, mayoral control has no impact. And yeah, it's not yeah, affected by the state budget. And we've got this important study being conducted by the state education department that is going to come out uh, probably a little bit after the state budget is resolved, but well before 
the current system expires. So there's time to make this decision properly. A couple quick things. You um, held a roundtable I thought was really interesting. The state is going through this process of with this with other stakeholders of citing new casinos potentially in New York City, maybe in Long Island. Um, and you held a roundtable about, you know, sort of discussing the impacts of uh, casino gambling on uh, marginalized communities, especially Asian American communities. Just and we this again, this could be a whole huge topic, but is it your stance that you do not want to see a casino come to flushing? Is that sort of generally your position or where are you at on that question? No, I wouldn't say that's my position at all. The roundtable that was hosted by uh, Assemblymember Grace Lee and Senator Kavanaugh, Senator Ewan Chu, and myself, uh, this was to dis begin discussions about what I believe is a, a real consequence of gambling, especially bringing casino gambling to New York City, that uh, there is already a targeting of the Asian American community by casinos, by gambling companies, uh, and 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 that leads to real problems individual for individuals and their families. Gambling addiction is real, and so if if there is any decision to be to make uh, to bring a casino or maybe even more than one casino to New York City, uh, there needs to be there there need to be resources and mitigation efforts to counter gambling addiction anywhere, but specifically in Asian American communities, given that casinos have shown themselves to directly target Asian American communities. A lot more to discuss there, but that's interesting to clarify your stance on that because there's obviously a, a push. Not saying bring... no. Yeah. And yeah. not saying yes. Yeah. But mm -hmm. if it's if if it does happen, there needs to there there need to be resources to count. There need to be a recognition that this is a problem and resources to address the problem. You have proposed to end uh, some property tax breaks for Columbia University and NYU and uh, redirect some of that uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in lost uh, potential tax revenue towards CUNY. Has that proposal moved in the legislature as far as you can tell? Is that something that you think is really a live issue for um, passage? at least the first needed passage um, in this state budget or or even separately from the state budget? Do you think there's real life to that proposal or uh, do you not love the, the reception? We just, made, we just made the proposal not too long ago, so yeah. it certainly is live. Uh, and it's a very real issue. The issue being that, uh, that these property tax exemptions were given to nonprofits a long time ago, over 100 years ago, uh, with the with the idea that nonprofits, particularly small nonprofits and educational institutions, should not have to bear a tax burden as they as they pursue an objective that is for the good of all society. Mm -hmm. uh, but in recent years, we have now seen uh, a very rapid acceleration uh, to the point where I think some of the to the point where I think the very fact that we give these exemptions actually encourage growth and possible empire building as opposed to remaining true to the missions of education and and the good of society. And so now we're talking about huge institutions that are now getting well over a hundred million dollars of tax breaks every single year. 
And, you know, it's not about, it's not about taking something away from one or two institutions. It's about trying to figure out how this, I think the total is over $300 million a year. How best to spend this $300 million? Do we spend $300 million by giving it away in tax breaks, which, you know, go to what I consider good institutions that are, are doing some good for the city? Or is or can we actually do even greater good with the $300 million by, for example, reinvesting that into the city University of New York, which, by the way, serves a heck of a lot more New York City residents and school and students. Lastly, um, obviously, there's been so much uh, focus on housing policy, especially over the last year plus um, d- different set of proposals from the governor this year. But for you uh, and for your district in Northeast Queens, um, what are your top one or two or three priorities on housing policy that you want to make sure is part of any either big package that's agreed upon or just legislation that's passed if the legislature decides to sort of take it uh, a chunk at a time or a policy at a time? What are your top priorities on housing policy? Um, Because, you know, your district, of course, has some of its own uh, unique characteristics and unique needs. And um, I'm wondering. Yeah, but sort of, a lot of the yeah. needs are in common with the rest of the city. We definitely need more housing in my district as well as in much of the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we need we need more housing. We also need more affordable housing. Mm-hmm. And those policies have to come uh, in tandem with, you know, we don't want to. It's not just about building more housing. It's about having New Yorkers including people in my district, have decent places to live. And so that that has to include tenant protections as well. So mm-hmm. tenant protections, uh, housing, construction, they come hand in hand. To say that they're separate issues, I, I think that misses the greater point. We want people to have decent places to live in New York City. That might be a reference to the governor saying the other day that these are separate things and she doesn't understand why they're joined together and uh, that was an I didn't hear time. that from the governor. Maybe oh, you okay. did, Ben. I'm not yeah. trying to pick a fight with anybody okay. here. Oh, no. The governor, just the other day <laughs> in, in, a, in a Q&A after an event, she was asked about, uh, I can't remember the exact question about housing policy, but she, I think it was something about tenant protections and good cause eviction. And she said something like, I'm always open to discussing tenant protections, but the main issue we need is more housing supply. And I don't understand why these are always linked and they don't need to be linked together. We need to start getting more housing built and we can discuss, you know, tenant protections as well, but they don't have to. You should have the governor time. come on and explain uh, the, her position the, on that. You don't invi- need to do her explaining the invitation, for her. I'm just telling you what she said. Uh, <laughs> the invitation has been extended. I had the housing commissioner on. Um, I mean, if, you know, if I was actually giving advice to the governor, I'd say, actually, you know, you could say how more housing supply is its own form of tenant protection, because when there's more choice in the market, you know, tenants have more of an upper hand. But anyway, um, anything else on housing that you want to mention before I let you go? You know, I know there's, you know, I think the governor's on the right track in, in focusing and emphasizing incentives as opposed to penalties. And the mayor uh, wants legalized uh, new codes to legalize basement apartments and get them up to code. He wants, um, uh, a, a removal of the floor area ratio cap. Um, he wants help with office conversions to housing. Any of those that you like or don't like real quickly, and I'll let you go. 
Well, I think they they have to be considered in totality and not one versus the other. So the governor's put forth a proposal. We're certainly looking at it in totality. And uh, we'll see in a, about a month and a half what happens. All right. <laughs> State <laughs> Senator John Liu, I appreciate all the time. Let me let you go. Thanks for staying a few extra minutes. And uh, let's stay in touch, of course. Thanks for having me, Ben. Say hello to your colleagues.